All right. Oh, it's so good to see you today. I'm really glad that you're here. And uh, wherever you're joining us from, we're just glad that you're a part of this experience as we continue to seek God, worship God together. Well, I, I got to tell you, today's passage is one of those passages that just makes a real Christian's heart sore. You know what I mean? This passage we're about to look at is just filled with promise and potential. It's one of those passages where you just want to say, thank you, God, that you are so good to us and you have a heart for us. So let's look at the words of Jesus together, and then we're going to spend some minutes kind of exploring uh, what the implications are for us. Here's what Jesus said. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be open. And then Jesus gives a window into the Father's heart. Which of you, if his son asked for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And then this next verse, verse 12, is, is what we often call the golden rule. It appears twice in the Gospels. Uh, the other appearance is Luke chapter 6, verse 31 where it reads a little differently, but here's, here's how it's recorded in Luke. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Wow, what an incredible passage. Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and you do... How much more, he says, will your Father in heaven, who is not evil, obviously, how much more will he give good gifts to those who ask him? Wow. I am so encouraged, brothers and sisters, that the consistent, not just isolated, but the consistent message of Scripture is that God, just like a loving parent, longs to bless and encourage and lavish his children with good gifts. No, that's not wishful thinking. That is sound biblical teaching. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Hallelujah. But I got a question for you. Is Jesus really saying here in this passage today, look, your father in heaven is kind of like Aladdin's genie. Just want all you disciples to know this, just so you're clear on what prayer is all about. It's like every time you rub your little prayer lamp, God says, I'll pop out and give you everything you ask for. Is that what Jesus is really saying here? You just get anything you want, anytime you ask, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what it is, I'm your cosmic genie. One respected Bible scholar, Alec Motyer, wrote something I think 
it's, it's worth looking at together. He said, if it were the case that whatever we ask, God was pledged to give, then I, for one, would never pray again because I would not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. And I think if you consider it, you, you will agree. It would impose an intolerable burden on frail human wisdom if by his prayer promises, God was pledged to give whatever we ask when we ask it and in exactly the terms we ask. How could we bear the burden? And I personally believe that Alec Motyer is is right. I think he has a strong point. If Jesus is teaching here that God is our cosmic genie and all we have to do is rub our little prayer lamp and poof, our wish is his command, you may think that would be great. You may say, I would, I would wish for my team to win all their games this year and go to the Super Bowl. I wish for this and I wish for that. You may think that would be great, but trust me, that would place an intolerable burden on every one of us and the world would be a mess before we knew it. And the reason I believe that is because I have prayed some dumb prayers in my life. I wonder how many of you are with me. Could I see a show of hands if you... If you have prayed, I'm talking about the dumb prayer people now. If you're not a dumb prayer person, do not raise your hand. How many of you, put them up high. You've prayed some dumb prayers in your life. Thank you very much. I don't feel alone now. You know how I get happy? When I wanna feel happy, I just remind myself of some of the dumb prayers that God did not answer the way I wanted them answered. Oh, thanks be to God. He loved me too much to grant me my every request. And so in his wisdom and love and benevolence, he held some things back and he said no or not yet. So how are we to understand these prayer promises of Jesus? I mean, are they unconditional or do they come with some conditions attached? Well, here's how you need to work that out as a disciple. Disciples of Jesus should learn to compare Scripture with Scripture. In fact, we should never absolutize just one text, but we should delight, actually, in going all over the Bible because it's all God-breathed, and we should compare text with text and let the Holy Spirit guide us to some sound conclusions. So let's do that today. So what's going on when God says no or not yet to some of our prayer requests? What are those factors that frustrate our prayer life and make it ineffective? Now, I'm going to warn you right up front, do warning, this is going to get very personal. But as we search the scriptures today, we're gonna to look at several barriers to prayer and they all begin with S. You say, where did you get these? I first heard them as a teenager, literally, in Gum Springs Church growing up. These four S words, I'm a brand new Christian. I've only been following the Lord just a few years and I will never forget what an impact this had on me when someone explained from the Bible, these things can 
frustrate your prayer life. They're hindrances to effective prayer. And I've never forgotten them over these 40 years. I have no idea who first came up with all the S words here, but I do know this, the principles behind them are straight out of God's word. So go with me today as we look at four common barriers that sometimes render our prayer life a bit ineffective. And since the prayer promises of God are not unconditional, we need to know what those hindrances are because prayer at its best is not a transactional thing. It's a relationship, a healthy relationship with the living God. I heard about a little three-year-old boy who was going shopping with his mother they were going to the grocery store, and like a good mom, she coached him ahead of You know, I've noticed parents, wise parents, set expectations for their kids. Have you ever noticed that? And she said, now I want you to know that you're not gonna get any chocolate chip cookies today, so please don't even ask. We're just going on a quick little shopping trip. Don't even ask for chocolate chip cookies. She knew they were his favorite. So she starts filling her basket, and about on the first aisle, he says, Mom, could I have some chocolate chip cookies? She said, now, I already told you, you're not gonna get any today. Well, she kept on shopping and filling her basket, and after two or three more aisles, he said, Mom, may I have some chocolate chip cookies, please? I mean, he was very nice about it. She said, I am so sorry, but I've already told you, don't even ask, you're not gonna get any cookies today. Well, she had almost finished with her shopping, and she was headed toward the checkout counter, and you could read the little boy's mind. He was thinking. You could almost read. He was thinking deeply. He knew this was his last opportunity because he had been with his mom before to this store. He knew we're about to go out of here. And so then his mind went to something he had heard in Sunday school, something from church. And so he boldly stood up in the little car and said, in the name of Jesus, give me some chocolate chip cookies. And as the story goes, the mom left the store that day with 17 boxes of chocolate chip cookies that her fellow shoppers had bought for her little boy. Now, some people believe, hey, that's the way prayer works, just a little formula, it's just a transaction. I kind of trick God into giving me what I want. I use the magic mantra, no, 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 no. Prayer's not transactional. It's not like getting things from God. Prayer flows out of a healthy relationship with our heavenly Father. But some things can frustrate that. So here we go. Reason number one is my attitude to self. My attitude to self. This is the first barrier. You find that in the New Testament in James chapter four. Look at what he said in verse two. The apostle James, you do not have because you do not ask God. By the way, <laughs> that's a verse we ought to put on the wall of our homes, I think, because you know there are so many blessings that I believe we leave unclaimed, things that we just fail to ask for for whatever reasons. But James goes on. He said, now look, sometimes here you need to be aware of another reality. In verse three, he says, when you ask, part of your problem is you just don't ask. But when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Ah, that you may spend 
what you get on your pleasure. So here we see the first barrier that tends to frustrate prayer. Our motives matter. And when we come to God with a selfish motive, it's just all about me, it's about my pleasure, my own agenda in life, that's going to frustrate our prayers. I think we get a powerful illustration of this in the life of Elijah. If you want an exciting story, go home today and read from the book of 1 Kings chapter 18, the story of Elijah the prophet as he battled the prophets of Baal. Wow, what a story. Let me give you a quick overview. In Elijah's day, Baal worship was prominent in the land, and God was grieved by this. So Elijah, as God's prophet, sends out a challenge to the 450 prophets of Baal, and he says, look, we're gonna meet on Mount Carmel, and we'll see which God answers by fire. Is it Baal, or is it the true and living God. So the prophets of Baal built their altar and began to stand around it, and boy, they prayed their hearts out. You can read the story for yourself, and their prayers were frenetic and passionate and boisterous, and they really got into it. It went on for hour after hour, and nothing happened. And Elijah said, my turn. Let me call on the true God of Israel, and here's what he prayed in 1 Kings. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. That's his first prayer. Nothing happened. Now, go with me here. Don't wanna press this too far because we don't know for sure. I believe that some time elapsed between that and the next part of the prayer. I hope you understand that many things in the Bible are conflated. What I mean by that is they're summarized. For instance, the Sermon on the Mount that we're studying in these weeks together, I hope you understand that isn't all that Jesus said up on the mountain that day. If that's all he said, the Sermon on the Mount was a whopping 10 to 15 minutes in length. No, be sure, Jesus probably taught for hours up there. What we have in our Bible is exactly what God the Holy Spirit wants us to have. It is a summary, a terse summary of probably the salient points of what Jesus said. It's exactly what God wants us to have. But make no mistake, he said a lot more. So it's conflated, it's summarized. And I believe that this prayer is probably the same way. We have no idea how much time elapsed between this prayer and the next thing he prays. What we do know is that there was no answer up until this point. So look at what he says next. It almost seems to be more urgency now, and that's why I believe some time perhaps elapsed. Answer me. Answer me, oh Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, oh Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Woo! Did you catch the difference between the two prayers? Or if you don't believe it's two, at least from the first part of the prayer to the second part, did you catch the difference? First part of the prayer, 
it seems that Elijah wanted some of the glory. Let them know that I have done this, that I am your prophet. No answer. Second prayer, let them know, let these people know, Lord, that you are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. Big difference in the motives. Friends, our motives matter. And the first motive for a real disciple of Jesus should always be that God's will be done and that God would get the glory for anything that is accomplished, that he would get all the credit. But make no mistake, when our motives are selfish, it puts static, static on the line. The second thing God says can frustrate our prayers is my attitude to sin, my attitude to sin. We get a glimpse of this from the life of King David, this one who had a, most of the time, it seems an intimate relationship with God the Father. He says in Psalm 66, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but God has surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. Now, the apostle John tells us if anyone claims to be without sin, he or she deceives themselves and the truth is not in them. So according to the Bible, everybody is always dealing with some measure of sin, right, in our lives. I love what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. He said, there's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. So my belief, my belief is that personally, you are never going to be in a state of complete sinlessness while you're on the planet. If you disagree with me, I don't wanna fight with you about that. Many people do believe it's possible to get there on the earth. I just wanna ask their spouse if they believe it. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I just wanna ask their neighbors, their, their friends, their fellow employees, and I think they might tell a different story. But what does David mean then? When he says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I suggest to you that cherish means hold on to it. Not be willing to confess it and actually deal with it. See, here's the deal. As Christians, we're called to make war on the sins that beset us and frustrate our lives. But it is possible, as you walk with Jesus, it's possible to start condoning sin. It's possible to just accept sin and kind of give up the struggle and to make peace with sin until the point that your conscience is actually calloused. And that really presents a problem with our prayer life when we kind of make peace with sin. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Jeremiah or not, but I, I tell you, he's, he's one interesting prophet. He, one of my favorites, called by God, even from his mother's womb, God set him apart, Jeremiah 1.5 says. I mean, wow, what a message, what a man of God. But you know what? If you read the book of Jeremiah, 
Would you believe me if I told you God said to Jeremiah, I don't want you organizing any prayer meetings to pray for your nation. I don't want you organizing any prayer meetings to pray for the people here. I don't want you to pray for them. I'm not gonna listen if you do. Do you believe God would say such a thing? Well, I think some of you may not believe that. So let me show you what he actually said. So do not pray for this people nor offer any plea or petition for them do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Whoa. God goes on a few chapters later. Do not pray for this people nor offer any plea or petition for them because I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their distress. I thought God was a loving, caring God. I thought he would respond to everything. I thought he was our cosmic genie. God says, don't, don't, don't even go there. What is wrong? Is God going nuts? What's wrong with God? He goes on in chapter 14. Then the Lord said to me, this is God's man, Jeremiah. The Lord said to me, do not pray for the well-being of this people. Is your head spinning? Can you believe God would say that? And as if it weren't emphatic enough already, he goes on to the very next chapter, 15, verse one, even if Moses and Samuel, now, if you're new to the Bible, let me just give you some insight here. Moses and Samuel were heavyweights. I mean, Moses is the one that, says in Exodus 33, verse 11, God would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to him. You talk about an intimate relationship. Moses was a world-class intercessor in prayer. Samuel, the same way. God says, look, in case you're not getting the message yet, Jeremiah, not only are you not to intercede and pray for the people, but even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Why? Why would God ever say you're wasting your breath to pray about this? Well, if you read his message in chapter seven, his famous temple sermon I read it afresh and anew this week and just marveled at what God said there through Jeremiah. The essence of his message is this. The reason I'm not gonna listen is because it's become all fashionable to you to come to the temple and say, we're worshiping the Lord Almighty, but you're not dealing with your sin. He says, unless you come in genuine repentance, you're never gonna really do business with God. So God says to Jeremiah, listen, I won't answer their prayers because they are so stubborn and not dealing with the sin in their lives. I warned you. <laughs> I warned you this was gonna get personal. But let's let the message be crystal clear. Anytime we refuse to make sin against or war, rather, against the besetting sins in our life, anytime we ignore sin and refuse to confess it and forsake it, our prayers, mine and yours, are gonna be greatly frustrated. Unconfessed sin creates static on the prayer telephone. 
He said, well, good night, Pastor Rat. What are we supposed to do then? Here's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to live daily with an attitude of repentance. Because sin is always gonna dog us, but we're to keep short accounts with sin. Here's what that looks like. When we get out of line, when we sin, the Holy Spirit will immediately convict you of that unless your hearts become calloused. Immediately you'll be convicted. Keep short accounts, confess it, deal with it right away. Bring it to God, oh Lord, I'm so sorry, here I go again. Out of line, disobedient to you. I confess this for what it is. I agree with you that it's sin. Please forgive me. And then that communion and fellowship with God is restored. But we should never go through life acting like sin is no big deal. If we do, there's tremendous static on the prayer line. Barrier number three is my attitude to submission. You get insight to this in the book called 1 John in our Bible. Here's the way the Apostle John puts it. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Wow, that says, look, when we're obeying God's commands, walking in his will, we're in submission to him, we can come boldly with confidence before God. But when we're not, the confidence is lacking. I would submit to you that lordship to Jesus is not an optional thing in the Christian life. Any area of our life where we're not submitted to obey God creates static on the line of prayer. Or to put it a little differently, we cannot relate to God like a spare tire. You know what I mean by that? As long as life is cruising, we just ignore him until, until we have a blowout or emergency. And then it's, oh God, oh God, we call on him, we submit to him for a while until our life is fixed again. And then we ghost God again and we ignore him as we go on down the road of life and do our own thing. That's what I mean by treating prayer as a transaction, not as a relationship. Okay, and it can happen. It can happen to genuine disciples of Jesus. One of the most haunting verses in the Bible to me happens toward the end of King Saul's life in the Old Testament, where Saul, his life is a total mess at this point, and he makes the tragic, the tragic mistake of seeking out a spiritual medium and having a seance, of all things, to try to communicate to Samuel, the prophet, who is deceased. And he's doing this because he basically says, look, I realize my prayers aren't getting beyond the ceiling. And so here's what we read in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me. And God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I've, I've called on you to tell me what to do. 
Now, the reason that is so horrendously sad, there's a number of them. But one of the reasons that's so tragic is that that's so far from where Saul started. He was God's man called by God, gifted by God. It says the spirit of God came upon him in power. I mean, this guy was committed to do God's will in God's way. But you know what happened? You know what happened? It happens to us as believers today. Through the years, Saul began to practice partial obedience to what God said. And hey, if God's agenda wasn't unfolding fast enough for his liking, he took matters into his own hands. He would start cutting corners on obedience. And as a leader, he was no longer humbly submitted as he had been at the start. The result, he spent the last 20 years of his life totally out of touch with God. The result, God said, I'm gonna, I've rejected you as a leader and I'm gonna seek out a man after my own heart because Saul's life had gone off the rails in terms of disobedience. And he was no longer submitted to the Lord. Listen, Jesus taught us that we have a heavenly father who desires, it's his desire to give us good gifts. And I want you to hear today, his ear is never, ever closed to the person who is humbly submitted to his will. But when a believer in the Lord is blatantly disobedient to God's will, trust me, it puts enormous, enormous static on the prayer line. Well, there's one fourth and final thing I wanna mention, and that is my attitude to my spouse can really create static. Husbands, in the same way, this is the Apostle Peter speaking here, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Husbands, if you don't treat your wives well, your prayer life is gonna be hindered. And when there's a dysfunctional marriage, it really creates static on the line. I wish we had more time because there's so many layers there to that statement in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse seven. But here's the bottom line. Most, most dysfunction in marriage, I know this is an oversimplification, it is, I admit it. But most of it kind of boils down to selfishness, doesn't it? On the part of one or both partners. And that kind of takes us back to the beginning of what we said today. When there are patterns of selfishness and sin, it really puts static on the line of prayer. Now, here's my guess. I, I can almost read your minds right now. Some of you are going, man, I came to church for this? Yeah, I hear you. I hear, I don't blame you for thinking that. Some of you are going, man, I am so discouraged right now. Pastor Rex, I gotta be real with you, man. If all these things put static on the line, if all these things could be barriers to effective prayer, I'm never gonna be a good prayer warrior because I'm never gonna get over all these things. I completely disagree with you. 
So as we wrap up today, I want to encourage you, if possible. This is my prayer journal. I use this every single day. It is a big old journal. I'm telling you, it's got probably hundreds of pages in it here. And man, there's a lot of stuff in here. Every day, I just kind of live in this. And, and, and I've, got it, I've got it arranged according to the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. I figure, hey, you know, each section in here is kind of based on the phrases of the Lord's Prayer, okay? And I figure, hey, if nothing else, I'm at least gonna pray the Lord's Prayer every day, right? When I, when I go to God in prayer. And, and boy, I've got sections in here on praise and thanksgiving, on intercession, personal petitions, repentance and forgiveness. I mean, there's all these sections in here. And by the way, your names are in here. Did you not, any of you, your names are in here. I pray for you. Thank you. Man, I, I, might, I might have read some of these. No, no, I won't do that. <laughs> I won't do that. This, this is too personal. But here's the thing. I've also got in this wonderful prayer journal, I've got some inspirational quotes that really stoke me up. Quotes on prayer. Here's one of my favorites. I wanna share it with you. It's very short. Leanne Payne, true prayer is the most exciting thing in the world. I love that. It is an awesome thing to dialogue with the living God. I think she's absolutely right. And so in today's passage, here's my final encouragement to you. You remember the golden rule? Matthew 7, verse 12, where Jesus said, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. Would you like to have some righteous person, since the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, would you like to have a righteous person praying for you? If so, by the way, I do. Nothing encourages me more. I'm just being real with you now. That When someone walks up to me and says, hey, I just want you to know, Pastor Rex, my spouse and I pray for you every week. Wow, it just blows me away. I can hardly speak after hearing that. I'm so encouraged by that. I love to have people praying for me. I think that's a powerful and a profound and extremely encouraging thing. If you like that, why don't you do that for someone else? So here's my commitment. I have decided that as God enables me, I'm gonna be the best prayer warrior I can be. Since I love it, I love it when people intercede and pray for me. I'm gonna do that for them and I'm gonna live in such a way that as far as it depends on me, I'm keeping the line as clear as possible. I'm gonna keep checking myself in regard to self and sin and submission and my relationship with Debbie. And I encourage you to do the same. Pray for your children. Pray for your grandchildren. Pray for the members of your small group. Pray for friends in the church and coworkers outside of the church. Pray for your neighbors by name. Pray for people that God puts on your heart who, as far as you know, don't have a relationship with Jesus yet. Intercede for them, but keep the static off the line as much as you can by God's grace, by God's grace, by God's grace. Keep the static off the line. Because I think Leah and Payne's got it right. 
Prayer is the most exciting thing in the world. And I know Jesus has it right. You ask for bread, your father is going to give you a stone. If you ask for fish, he's not going to give you a snake. He wants to lavish good gifts on you. But be the kind of person whose prayer life flows out of a healthy relationship with God. Father, this is our heart desire. We desire more than anything else to please you, to have a deep, intimate, personal relationship with you, one that's growing every single week that goes by. Oh, we long for that. We want to know you and all the depths of who you are. So help us. Help us to live in a way where there's very little static on the line. Very little static on the line so that prayer will flourish. Thank you, Lord, that your desires for us are to bless us, to lavish us with good gifts. Jesus has made that clear to us. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for that. And we thank you that you've invited us to come boldly to the throne of grace. We commit ourselves to you afresh and anew today, O oh Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.